And after 1400 years of Islamic philosophy, thinking, and cultural fabric, the only way, you know, a lot of people think, oh, if, if we do a political struggle or, or military action, we're going to change a country. Yeah, you may change a government, but you're not going to change the people. So how do you make that change? Change their theology. Change their theology. Change their theology. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. And today I'm actually going to be talking with uh, my friend Ed Solly from Canada because we are in his studios in the greater Toronto area. And today we're going to be talking about the struggle of Muslims who convert to Christianity from within a Muslim context. Ed, I'm so glad to be here with you today, and uh, you're a, now a longtime friend for the past few years, and we've been around the world together. We've been in some of these places together, uh, in the underground church, perhaps, and and witnessing to people around the world, and so I'm so excited to be here with you. Pleasure and, to be here with you. Yeah, and, uh, and you are a graduate of Trinity College of the Bible and nice. Theological Absolutely. Seminary, yes. and we are so proud of that and proud to have you as a part of the Trinity family. So um, uh, you are a part of a ministry, but actually several ministries, uh, that allows you to have kind of a front row seat with some of these testimonies. So how did you get to where you are right now? Tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing what you're doing. Thank you, Brax. Uh, basically, uh, I've always had this heart and interest in helping uh, Muslims. Uh, as you know, there's a great revival happening in the Middle East and around the world. Many uh, Muslims are finding uh, Christ to be very attractive, uh, something that they had never experienced before. Uh, religious molds are no longer satisfying them with, you know, having these do's and don'ts. You know, you got to pray this way, you got to wash your hands this way. They want to have an experiential knowledge of God, a relationship that is more uh, an inner experience rather than just, you know, someone telling them how you pray and what to do, what not to do. So as a result of that, uh, you know, God somehow led me into opportunities where I could meet with these people. And I realized that there's tremendous hunger and thirst uh, in the Muslim world for uh, true Christianity. What is the true Christian faith because you know islam introduces christ in a very different way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so uh about five years ago i started a uh, social media group and slowly it expanded and evolved into a television online television streaming program where we started producing programs in the farsi language for the persian-speaking people around the world and uh, lately it has evolved into a satellite broadcast so we have our satellite channel that we're 24-7, we're broadcasting programs into the Middle East, and particularly inside Iran, where, as you know, it's very restrictive and very difficult for people to even come to faith and leave alone practicing their faith. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, we were privileged. Uh, I, I, as a, uh, a graduate of Trinity, I realized Trinity has a very unique opportunity here in my relationship with you and the college I realized that Trinity is probably the only institution that can do something that would reach these people on masses. And um, I approached you about a year and a half ago, said, Braxton, why don't we come up with a way to take the programs and the courses that you're offering uh, in the English language to all your professors and the faculty 
and let's have them dubbed and translated into Farsi and we establish a standalone yet affiliated to Trinity, uh, let's call it an institution or a ministry that we can have young men and women inside Iran and all over the world of Farsi speaking uh, people to have access to good theology because I strongly believe Braxton, something that I may have shared that with you in the past, you can only change the fabric of a civilization by their theology. Mm -hmm. You don't change the theology, that civilization will continue on, in a, on a particular path. <clears throat> and after 1400 years of Islamic philosophy, thinking, and cultural fabric, the only way you know, a lot of people think, oh, if, if we do uh, political struggle or, or military action, we're going to change a country. Yeah, you may change a government, but you're not going to change the people. Right. People are still thinking the same uh, ways of, you know, superstition and uh, various uh, philosophies that are even questionable in today's society. So how do you make that change? change their theology. Yeah, and so what, what, from my understanding, so we got together and we thought, okay, Trinity has, and this is not gonna be all about, you know, this relationship, but I think it's good to set it up. But we thought what we have here is uh, hundreds of hours of video lectures that Trinity has, because we have students in other parts of the world already who, when it's daytime for us, it's midnight for them, and so we record and make those available as what we call on-demand webinars. And you thought, okay, if we've already got those recorded, we could get them dubbed. Now, what people don't understand is that is a process that costs thousands of dollars. We're not talking about subtitles like you might have generated on YouTube. We're talking about um, somebody sitting down and reading it in Farsi. And <coughs> if I cough, the guy uh, that's that's uh, doing the dubbing, he coughs too. So it's an amazing thing. Uh, and so, but you you had all that done and. And so this is a costly endeavor. And then the satellite that beams this stuff. I mean, right now, as we're speaking, uh, this kind of thing is being beamed into the, the Middle Eastern Muslim world. And uh, that is just so powerful. And so we're so glad to have that relationship with you and uh, such an incredible thing. So <clears throat> your, your father, Fred Sali, um, he originally became a Christian in Iran, right? That's right. Is that right? That's right. And then uh, through a series of, of events, that's a very exciting story. He he got to Canada, and and your whole family are Christians now. Yes. And you now serve as an elder at a church, the Church on the Rock, that has a number of people who are Muslims who've converted right. to Christianity. And so there are some amazing stories that I've heard. Um, people may not realize <laughs> that the, the media may try to act like this isn't quite the way it is, but. It is quite dangerous, or can be quite dangerous, can't it, for Absolutely. someone who converts to Christianity or possesses some Bibles or some or has a house church. That's a scary situation. So, uh, talk a little bit about that. What kind of amazing stories do we have? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, the repression that is happening today in some of these countries, like Iran. Uh, we only read about them in, in stories by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in Soviet Union. And we, we think that these are just old stories and fantasies, but they're real. They're happening right now as mm. we speak. I just shared with you some pictures of dead bodies that they have been pulled out of the, a lake in Iran uh, of the protesters that were killed. 
Uh, and if you're a Christian or you become a Christian, you, uh, you put your life at risk of uh, the very least to be arrested, to be severely and harshly interrogated, to be given uh, warnings, to lose your job, to lose your status, your social benefits, your family becoming a target of harassment. Uh, that would be the least. And then, of course, uh, there would be mock trials and uh, trials that would end up in imprisonment, uh, long prisons, uh, terms are given, you know, at the least would be seven to ten years. Uh, and these prisons are no Hotel California where people can sit there and have three meals a day and read a book. They are very tough places to be. And then, of course, some have been executed as well. So, in light of that, to be a Christian and to practice your faith is extremely difficult. People have to go through so much and pay such a heavy price to confess Christ. And you would ask yourself, well, why would they do something like that? You know, uh, why would they go through all that? Uh, because they have experienced something that they cannot deny anymore. They must maintain it, retain it, and share it with other people. So we have stories of people that have... A, uh, you know, all kinds of things have happened to them, either supernatural, uh, I would call it supernatural because I have no other word to describe, uh, encounters with Christ, I, I'm pretty sure it is Christ that they've encountered, uh, because I know through church history, whenever the Christian community has been under, uh, you know, persecution, there has been times when God has supernaturally brought comfort and encouragement. So we had... Yeah, before you go on about yeah. that, I, I should tell anyone who this is perhaps the first video you've seen, we have an episode on this YouTube channel about um, uh, Muslims who are experiencing uh, a vision or a dream from uh, of Jesus where Jesus directly tells them where they can find the clear message of the gospel. And that happened to such a degree that in Egypt, uh, missionaries, Christian missionaries were paying for ads <coughs> saying, have you seen the man in the white robe? He has a message for you. Contact us. So this is a well-known and well-documented phenomenon. So you've heard of stories like that too. And, and, Absolutely. And, and what else? What other things? Well, I get contacted every day by these individuals that are, are saying that, you know, we've had an encounter with Christ and uh, we need help. Uh, come to us and tell us what we do. What, we should, what, should, what should I do next? So we have a story of uh, Christians. Uh, and this is Christians who already become a Christian. And they would have to uh, hide Bibles uh, in, in uh, you know, pl places that you would not imagine that they would, you know, figure it out that this would be a safe place to stock up some Bibles. Like they would dig the walls and put the Bibles in the walls oh and then, you know, cover it up or put it under their bed. And sometimes when the security uh, agents discover that there is activity going on, either a home church or uh, an individual is practicing their faith or evangelizing, they would raid the place. And these people have to come up with all kinds of creative ways, you know, hide the Bibles under their bed. Some people hold boxes of Bibles. You know, one of the things that we're doing nowadays in many ministries are smuggling Bible into countries like Iran. And, uh, you know, it's extremely dangerous work. But there are people who are hiding these Bibles, putting in in fake walls uh, under their bed, and it's just hanging on to them. And then slowly, very carefully going out there, and sometimes we call him lose the Bible. They lose a Bible on a, a park bench, you know, just <laughs> yeah, put a book there right. and then leave. Well, yeah. someone is going to just come and walk there and sit on the bench and is going to discover this little booklet or book. Yeah. And they're going to pick it up and they're going to read. 
So they, they do that. And then, of course, we've had people who, as you said, had visions. Uh, we had a, a very interesting story. I mean, for, for a North American mind, this may sound, you know, far-fetched or unbelievable. But you know what? God is not limited only to the North American brain. He, he needs to reach people who, who are thirsty and hungry to know who God is. Hey everyone, I wanted to jump in right in the middle of this interview because there was a story that Edwin shared with me uh, a day later after we recorded this that was like the most amazing, powerful story, one of the most powerful stories I think I've ever heard. It'll bring a tear to your eyes. So uh, I couldn't let us complete the interview without adding that story. So we come back in a minute for a little more interview, but I wanted to insert it here. So I, I called Edwin after I got back to Evansville from Canada, and I said, you got to just tell that story into your phone so that I can uh, put it into this YouTube video. So he did that for us. So stick with this. It, it will be worth it. It's the, it's the story that is referenced on the thumbnail. So, um, so I hope you enjoy this. There was a young man, a teenager, who grew up in a life of crime. As a teenager, his occupation was to steal. I guess part of his life depended on his ability to steal to sustain himself. So finally the government caught up with him. They arrested him. They tried him as a juvenile, but they gave him an adult sentence. So while he was in his mid-teens, the court sentenced him to prison time. Plus, at age 18, they would cut his fingers off according to Sharia law and the Islamic tradition that thieves need to have their fingers or their hands cut off. But while he was a teenager, that part of the sentence was not carried out. They waited until he's 18 years old. So this young man stayed in prison during his teen years, waiting for the day that he would turn 18 so that the prison officials would come and cut his fingers off. And while he was in those years awaiting the sentence, he decided to keep himself busy with some activity. So he went to the prison guards and asked them if there was something he could do as a hobby. And they told him, yes, he could go and pick some hobby from a hobby shop in the prison. So when he went there, he noticed that there were designs, um, pictures that were drawn on paper and he could make needlework. So he looked for a design that would fit his um, interest in doing this needlework and all the designs were taken except one. And that was the picture that you can see for yourself is the depiction of most likely Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still or quiet waters. And you would see it in the picture there. That was the only design that was left. I guess no prisoners or inmates were interested in that design because it was a depiction of a Christian 
message or a Christian theme, and nobody even up to today knows how did this Christian design or the depiction of Christ holding on to his sheep um, and a little lamb in his arms uh, ended up in an Iranian and an Islamic country in a prison. So that would probably be a, a miraculous and a very strange and supernatural um, incident that the Lord permitted for some reason someone to take that design into the prison and make it available to the inmates. So this young teenager picks that design and begins the work of doing the needlework. And as he begins to do this work, he begins to focus on the picture. He begins to focus on the face and the demeanor of this man who is supposed to be Jesus Christ. So the more he spends time looking at this picture and trying to duplicate this picture, uh, the design on this weaving of the fabric through needlework, the more he falls in love with this man. The innocence on his face, the transparency of his character, his integrity, his love and grace somehow comes through this picture. And he begins to wonder in himself, is it possible that I could be that lamb in his arms? Is it possible that God can hold on to me and hold me in his arms just the way that Jesus is holding this little lamp? How I wish I would be a lamb in his arms. And with this wish, with this desire, he begins to complete this project. And somehow, somewhere, at some point in the completion of this project, he finally comes to terms with the fact that if he was to choose a savior, if he, if he was to choose a leader, if he was to choose someone to follow in the pathway of faith, that person would be Jesus Christ. So he gives his heart to Jesus. He prays that, Lord, I want to be yours. Now, mind you, there has been no gospel. There has been no Christian literature. There has been no television, no radio, no contact with any form of Christian gospel evangelism or message. This has come through only a design on this pattern that he is preparing through needlework for himself. But the Lord is alive, the Holy Spirit, and touches him through the, what comes out of this picture, through this picture, and touches the heart of this young man. So finally, he is about to finish this project. He's about to finish this needlework, and he knows also his days are numbered. He's very close to the time that they will cut his fingers off and he won't be able to finish this project. So he prays and says, Lord, give me enough time so I can finish this project and I can complete this portrait through this needlework. And fortunately, he is able to finish the needlework completely. The pattern is completed. The fabric is prepared. And he puts it in the mail and sends it to his mother and says, Mom,
keep this as a souvenir from me because from this point on I will not be able to write, I will not be able to do anything because they're going to cut my fingers off. And lo and behold, on that specific day that the sentence had to be carried out, they bring him into the yard and they cut his fingers, both hands, the fingers were completely cut off and he has no fingers. And shortly after, he has completed his sentence, and he's released with no fingers, and he goes home, and of course his mother has kept this design and this fabric as a souvenir. Many years pass, and I was preaching on television, and one of these times that I was on television, I received a phone call from an older gentleman in his mid-40s and early 50s, who told me that he would like to give a tithe to the television ministry. Now, don't forget he lives in Iran, and I don't know who he is, I don't know where he lives, but he says, I would like to give a tithe to your ministry. And I said, brother, thank you very much for wanting to give a tithe to the ministry. I really don't want to take any money from you you live in a country that you cannot afford anything to give to me and I don't want your money. I should be the one helping you, not you helping me. But he turned around and said, no, I don't mean to send you money because I don't have any money. I'm a poor man. But I have something that I have cherished all my life, since my teen years. And I would like to send you that. I said, brother, you really don't need to do anything. I'm here to serve you. You don't need to do anything. He said, no, I insist because the Lord has put on my heart that I need to give this gift to you. I said, okay, if the Lord says so, I'll accept it. So what is it? He said, well, I used to be a thief when I was a teenager, and they caught me, they imprisoned me, and the sentence was at age 18 I had to have my fingers cut off, However, just before that, I did this artwork, this design. It's a Christian theme, and it's needlework. It's like a fabric, and I would like to give this to you as a gift. It's currently with me and my mom, but I want to give it to you. Well, I was shocked. I was very much shocked, and I didn't know what to say. I said, you know, brother, I will accept it from you, and I promise you one thing. Whatever it is, I will hang it in my office for the rest of my life. So everyone who comes in that office will see this framed work and will know the story. I was able to arrange for him to send this pattern, this fabric, to this friend of ours who was in Iran at the time. And this friend brought this gift back with uh, the family that he was traveling with to Canada. I was just completely amazed at the beauty of this work, at the intricacy and the, and the amazing work that had gone into doing this. Uh, a teenager had done this. Anyways, I was literally in tears when I saw this and I showed everyone, I said, look, this is how God works in the life of someone 
who has no access to the gospel, has no access to Christianity out there in the West, no television, no books, no literature, nothing. And yet God can find a seeker in the darkest, most dangerous, most God-forsaken place in a prison in Iran. If the person is thirsty and seeking, God will find that person. Look how God found this man. And this man has become a Christian only and only through a pattern that only depicts an aspect, a very limited aspect of the person of Jesus Christ as our shepherd. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, when you, you know, I, I remember hearing about uh, one of the ladies that had to, as you said, they, they put it in the walls, they put the Bibles under the beds. What might happen, if you're comfortable saying so, what might happen to a person uh, who is not, not an American like me over there who they might assume he doesn't understand, put him on a plane, send him back, but someone who is an indigenous Iranian and they were caught with, say, 100 Bibles transporting them. What, what might be the process there? My understanding is that could go a number of ways, depending on which officials and all that. But um, generally speaking, if you're caught with one Bible, uh, they will take that Bible away from you because they know that it, this is for your personal use. So they're going to take that away from you. They're going to interrogate you. Their purpose is to identify, as you know, we've seen throughout history, during the communism, the same thing happened. They would want to know where you got, where you get the Bible, who gave it to you, uh, who are you connected with, are you part of an, an organization that is distributing Bibles and you're one of their members. So they're going to do a thorough investigation and very harshly they're going to in, insult you. They're going to, uh, you know, uh, try to offend you in your faith and your family. That would be the least problematic situation. But if they find you with number of Bibles, then obviously they would consider you a distributor. Now you're distributing Bibles. Why would you need 10 or 20 or 50 of these Bibles? Right, right. So you're out there to distribute. So they would detain you and they would put a very high bail uh, you know, cost for you to even try to bail yourself out. And in most cases, they won't even allow that. So you will remain in the detention center uh, and you will go through <clears throat> extremely harsh interrogation process until they try to get everything out of you. You know, they just they will just empty your brain by very harsh treatments like sleep deprivation, food deprivation, mm. uh, you, know, you know, physical uh, abuse, whatever they can come up with. Uh, and then they would ex expose you to a court series of court hearings. Uh, where the judge is usually not a civic judge, is a cleric who sits there and, you know, obviously he is uh, pro defending his own faith. He represents that faith. And they would accuse you. And in that system, unlike North America, where you're presumed innocent until proven guilty, it's the exact reverse. You're guilty, not try to prove to us that you're innocent. Wow. And the, uh, the burden is on you to try to prove your innocence rather than the prosecutor try to prove your guilt. So you're already guilty as you enter the court. And no matter what you say, they've already decided according to their constitution that you have become an apostate. And the crime for apostasy could vary anything from, uh, from uh, financial penalties to execution and anything in between. Most people get at least one or two years of prison 
terms and sometimes they get a suspended prison term if they pay a financial penalty and they go under you know house arrest or some other for having a box of bibles having a box of bibles so uh, now if if i was a, a muslim in iran and i became a christian and let's say that i've been dodging this i i've been a part of a house church um but i decided I, i've got to get out of here i've got to get out of iran what would I do? Is that an easy process? Where do I go? How do I how do I do that? Well, it depends if they've already identified you as someone who, uh, in their intelligence records, has some kind of a uh, you know check mark as to whether you're an active Christian or not. If they haven't yet discovered you, uh, you know you have your passport and uh, you would apply for a I visa. Can go you can get well anywhere. Out. You can get out. Yeah. Okay. Most likely. But if they've already identified as to who you are and they have a record on you, uh, they probably will not let you leave uh, through the normal channels. So a lot of these Christians who have either been interrogated or persecuted in some form, they would choose to escape through you know, your uh, land borders, not even the official border, like through mountains and through deserts, find a way. And there's some local tribes people there that would probably smuggle you across the border. But it's not simply getting in a truck and going to the other side, like you would have, let's say, U.S.-Mexico border. It's not like that. It is a very mountainous area, very dangerous, very hard. And there are guards that would shoot. And they won't ask questions. They would see somebody trying to cross the border illegally. They would shoot the person. So many people get killed in crossing the border. But it's a very harsh crossing. And uh, it takes not just a couple of hours, it takes a few days to be able to cross the border. So not easy. Yeah. Well, what I want people to understand here is that this is happening in today's world. I mean, I think sometimes in the West, we start to think, uh, you know, it's all like, it's, just, it's like we know it's bad in other places or it's different in some way, but I don't think we realize or appreciate the freedoms that we have. Um, that, that in today's world, there are people who are being persecuted for having a box of Bibles. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, one of the things that comes to my mind when I think about this, and of course, we're Christians sitting here, the thing that, that is impressive to me is I see so many other non-Christian worldviews. And to some of you out there, this may sound offensive and I can't help it, but um, we're okay. Christians are okay with Qurans being around. Uh, uh, we're okay with uh, uh, having other uh, you know, atheistic literature and propaganda material. We're okay with this. And the reason is because we're not self-conscious about our Christianity. We believe that Christianity will do perfectly fine in the marketplace of ideas. That compare it with any other worldview, we're going to be fine. But you find in uh, other worldviews to different extents, maybe not to the extreme that is going on with the Bibles in Iran, but an attempt to silence it, get it out of the public square, get it off people's minds, get it out of the country in this case. And uh, with Christianity, we're fine with, hey, I, I want my daughters to know what's in the Quran. I want my daughters to, to read the great you know, Bertrand Russell and, and things like that. So, well, Ed, I appreciate this and I've enjoyed it. And I hope that we can continue to work together to see Absolutely. Uh, Christ brought to the Muslim world. Absolutely. Um, real quickly, would you just go ahead and share with us a little bit about um, your experience at our school at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Uh, you you are, are a doctoral graduate with us and, um, and obviously doing amazing things for the Lord. 
did you enjoy your time? Do you feel like it was worth the effort? Uh, what did you get out of that experience? I would say it was one of the, the best experiences of my life. Uh, unlike any other post-secondary education that I had previous to this, uh, I found uh, the Trinity experience uh, very relaxing, accommodating, uh, highly academic and uh, up-to-date with the latest developments in theology. The professors and the lecturers were amazing people, very, very nice people. I could communicate with them. I could uh, ask questions either on the webinar uh, time or outside of the webinar and, and uh, very, very professional. So I truly enjoyed and the courses that I took towards my graduation uh, in, in master's and, and PhD, uh, well presented, well documented. The material was very easy to understand and yet the depth of the material was sufficient for me to gain a good understanding of what, what they were trying to say. The reference material were excellent. I, I, I truly enjoyed. I would say Trinity is uh, really the, a trendsetter in my opinion, because I think the future education, whether it's theology or any other subject, must follow this pattern where you allow people in their own time and convenience to be able to study at their own pace. I would have nothing but high recommendation for anyone who's interested in theological studies to contact Trinity and to work with Trinity. Well, I appreciate that, Ed. And again, Ed is one of our uh, graduates, and he is serving in the greater Toronto area at the Church on the Rock as an elder, but he's also a documentarian. He's also uh, in charge of a church network, and uh, he's just doing amazing things to reach the Muslim world and is seeing people come to Christ out of that context. And so it is our hope that you will um, perhaps uh, look into his ministry further, check out uh, some information about him that we'll put in the description for this. And listen, I've enjoyed this time that we have together. If you'd like to support what we're doing here at Trinity Radio, you can click in the top right-hand corner of this screen, or you can visit us at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. But thank you for being with us, and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.